0: Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Fern Freud, who comes to us all the way from southern England. Fern is what I would consider an outsider, and that's an increasingly rare breed of human who spends more time out of doors than indoors. Fern developed her skills as a mushroom forager early in life in some intriguing familial circumstances, and she has since become a prolific plant forager as well. Fern shares her foraging talents both on social media and in her community, leading groups into the woods, sharing an appreciation of nature's abundance, and doing her part to turn the tide against Britain's entrenched mycophobia. Not afraid to dabble in the realm of the Green Witch, she's immersed in folklore and folktales, which seem to go hand-in-hand with an appreciation of the mysterious kingdom fungi. Fern, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Well... Thank you for being here. I'm glad we were able to connect here over the Atlantic and navigate time differences and technology and And everything else. the amazing
1: world we live in.
0: Exactly. Well, um, usually where I'll start with a lot of my guests is Mm -hmm. kind of their origin story and how they got into foraging. And for you, uh, I learned that that's kind of even (laughs) more interesting than I had initially thought. So just to get it out of the way, I don't want to make the whole podcast about this, but your last name is Freud. And there's yeah. not a point. Qu- I mean, you have a relation to the Freud that everyone knows.
1: Yes, I do. So he's a great great granddad, I think. Um, so yeah, not not a big part of my life really. But everyone everyone's always is the first question people ask. Like, oh, are you related?
0: <laughs> it,
1: so yeah.
0: It isn't. It isn't mandatory reading in the family. Do we all need to read Sigmund's work? And we, or or were you familiar with it just by being raised in that environment?
1: Um, it sort of comes up around the table, you know, like, occasionally, everyone does have a kind of common interest in, like, art and psychology, definitely. Um, But yeah, you you know, it's not like an initiation rite where you have to have read
0: right. or you <laughs> the have to
1: works of sigmund freud to be allowed at the dinner table
0: right or a coming of age ceremony you have to psychoanalyze someone in the family or something
1: <laughs> there is a lot of psychoanalyzing going on
0: i can imagine i can imagine you guys <laughs> yeah. know like way too much about how the brain works it makes it hard yes, to have any right. kind of argument
1: it makes for a weird growing up like if you've ever got any problems like what's the real problem here? right right "Ah,
0: we're not staying surface level here uh well and it was interesting to learn too how you started foraging because that's you know that's how I discovered you I think that's your biggest kind of uh foray into the mushroom world as it were uh is Mm -hmm. mushroom foraging and then how did that start you said it started when you were really young
1: yeah so um my dad's always had a massive um interest in mushrooms um generally of the uh psychoactive variety so we were kind of out in the fields from quite a young age um and yeah that was just sort of our like weekend activity we'd go out we'd pick mushrooms i think really dad just needed a bit of a workforce to collect as as many as he could um so we kind of got introduced to it that way um and then it just became like a really lovely family hobby and um yeah, me and my brother wanted to learn what everything else was, so we sort of expanded out the mushrooms. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it. It has that real. Um, what do you call it? Well, I've always
0: I've always, I've always been envious. I've always been envious of people that started as children that kind of got yeah. introduced to foraging early on,
1: because mm-hmm. I think
0: foraging has given me so many things that the one thing I wish is, man, I wish I had started this sooner. Uh, Because it Mm. does give you so many benefits outside of, you know, just the goodies that you find. Uh, Another thing that popped into my head in getting ready to interview you, you know, England Mm -hmm. is kind of this land of folktales and things like that, at least in terms of American culture. That's kind of some of my mythos around England is kind of the origin of a lot of folktales and fairy stories. And in doing my research, I was kind of bringing up some old stories, including... The story of Easter, not to sidetrack us too much, but the story of Easter (laughs) is actually that adults were looking for Amanita muscaria and other brightly colored, potentially uh, psychoactive or deliriant or some kind of, you know, physiological Mm -hmm. mind, uh, mind changing mushrooms. And Mm -hmm. they would recruit the kids to go out and find these bright little mushrooms and they would Mm -hmm. teach them to find bright Easter eggs. And we kind of trained them with different Easter egg hunts, and <laughs> and you know that was the time of year when the mushrooms would start yeah, popping yeah. out, and kids were just better at finding them. So, recruiting kids into the workforce to find psychoactive mushrooms, to me, seems mm-hmm. like it has a proud tradition.
1: Yeah, I think dad dad very proudly carried it on, and uh, that's what kids are good for.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it gives it gives ideas to everyone with kids out there. You've got a little. <laughs> You've got a little foraging workforce on your hands. Um, Do you know
1: what kids are always the best ones on all of all, all of my public workshops? Like if we're doing mushroom hunts, it's always the kids that find the best things because they're like they're closer to the ground. Yeah. They can just focus more. I don't know what it is, but they're they're always the ones that find the like great vines.
0: I'm I'm not surprised. Kids are a little bit closer to source. They seem to be inherently good at a lot of things. Um now. I do also want to bring up, I brought up my intro a little bit, um, the -hmm. cultural background of Britain. Uh, You know, Britain is known, in America as well, kind of Western Anglican countries are known for a little bit of mycophobia, especially when compared Mm -hmm. to areas in Asia, even areas in Eastern Europe. So Mm -hmm. how did that kind of affect your introduction into mushrooms? Obviously, as a family... You guys had, you know, a lot of influences pushing you to go forage for mushrooms. But did the influence of Britain's kind of mycophobic culture play any role in those early days learning about foraging?
1: Well, I think probably when I was a kid, it wasn't a common thing to do at all. Um, you know, there, there is a lot of fear around collecting mushrooms in England, um, and you know you you don't you don't have that kind of uh, you wouldn't ever bump into like another mushroom forager or it would be really rare. Um, so it kind of, a lot of people come up to you and say like, oh, what's in your basket and what are you doing? And you know, there is a lot of curiosity about it because just, you know, as people ever scares us, we're very, very curious about. Um, so it kind of made it a bit of a, a, a social talking point, really. Like we we met a lot of people and I guess it sort of became a niche for me because it was such a like odd thing to be doing. Um, so yeah, so in a way, I, I did kind of benefit from the the ingrained fear of mushrooms in England. Um, and and yeah, it's, it's not such a bad thing really. Uh, the, so many people come to my courses because they've got really outdoorsy kids who are always picking things up and you know, really curious about what's around them and, and they're worried because of this ingrained culture and they want to learn more. So yeah, I think I'm sneakily benefiting from the uh, microphobia there.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, it's actually making kind of a, a greater role for you to play as kind of the bringer mm. of this knowledge to a society that may not be as aware, you know, whether willfully or otherwise, just not as into mushrooms. So you get to have yeah. kind of a more of a prominent role uh, in bringing this to people, more of kind of a specialized role yeah and a bigger i'm definitely
1: lucky exactly in that way i feel like if i went to like poland or russia uh, you know they'd be like what <laughs> do you know what i mean like they'd be like are you sure you're an expert on mushrooms because we've been doing this
0: <laughs> yeah right
1: <laughs> and, we know more.
0: <laughs> and you probably have more competition uh, for mushrooms i was going to say it's another sneaky benefit yeah is a society that doesn't hunt mushrooms you know especially when you think about an island kind of a limited land mass Mm-hmm. it's nice to not have too much competition when you're yeah, out Yeah, that woods. is
1: true it's definitely like an increasing hobby now though like I've really noticed especially in the last like five years maybe it's it's becoming a lot more common and there are places now where we've got like uh because I know do you guys have it as well right and in in France I know they have kind of a limitation on how many mushrooms you can bring home or you have like a kilogram limit of
0: Well, in California, we're actually really lucky. Um, It's one of the few, insofar as I know, one of the few Mm -hmm. states where the state parks, it is legal to forage for mushrooms. Um, Sometimes it's legal without permit. Certain state parks, other places, they say you have to buy a foraging permit. But actually the influence of a lot of Eastern European communities and Italian Mm -hmm. communities that were some of the early settlers out here, um, especially in kind of Northern California around San Francisco made it much more, um, there was a much bigger cultural push to normalize mm-hmm. mushroom foraging. So whereas okay. it, it was something that they tried to really legislate, they did try to kind of legislate it a way where you couldn't pick wild mushrooms, but yeah. especially just recently I ran into an Italian gentleman in a hardware store of all places. Okay. And one, one of the other employees there actually recognized me from Instagram and said, Oh,
1: wow. oh
0: you have to talk to my coworker. He's an Italian. He loves mushrooms. Anyway, this guy just starts telling me this whole story about how mm. his family was one of this collective of Italian families that went to state legislature and really pushed in politics for a couple generations To make sure that foraging not only was legal, but that they could expand the actual, well, here it's pound limit of what you could take out of the forest.
1: Oh wow!
0: Yeah, so from where I am, I I can thank you know a lot of these Italian Eastern European families
1: for really boosting the limit.
0: (laughs) Exactly for boosting the limit and just making it something that uh, is legislated as being legal. You can go to a state park and pick mushrooms. You know, it's really. Uh, it's really something that I don't always appreciate, but hearing that story made me realize: Wow, we are in a unique place—not only for the great mushrooms that grow here in Northern California, but that yeah. there have been cultures that have paved the way to make it normalized to an extent where it is legal, and there's not you know this big stigma or at least illegality. Yeah, that's it.
1: brilliant. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, so so we don't have we don't have the limit at all because it's not it's not a um, such a common thing. I, I guess it might be bought in some areas at some point. Um, but here they kind of use the fear of mushrooms to to keep people off land. You know, if, it, if it's been picked quite a lot or if they have quite a lot of mushroom foragers on, on that area, there's quite often a sign somewhere that says, you know, beware poisonous mushrooms. Um, that's probably how you know you're in a good spot, though.
0: Yeah, um, yeah I was going to say, sometimes <laughs> yeah. that's a side post for foragers
1: yeah, yeah. to say,
0: oh, not only is there definitely mushrooms here, But people are going to be warned off by this side. Perfect.
1: Yeah, exactly. No one else is going to fight you for them. Come on in.
0: (laughs) So you got to start mushroom foraging in kind of that British culture where it's a little more unknowns and you had a familial history. You know, they're training you to forage mushrooms. Now you say they had a brother. So I assume he was out foraging, learning with you as well from a young age.
1: Yeah, he did come. He was probably a bit more reluctant. (laughs) He's now a, he's a coder, um, so he's definitely an indoors kind of guy. So I think maybe maybe right. it put him off a bit much.
0: <laughs> so, But you seemed to have taken to it and then actually kept going. And obviously now you're leading groups into the woods. We're going to get into that. But what was interesting to me is that you've expanded also, I mean, quite extensively into plant foraging, which... Mm. Is something i'm quite envious of i always see people out foraging for wild plants and i wish i knew more about it or how to do it because then you're not limited to this kind of only mushroom season you're able to pick things year round and i mean there's so many possibilities with plants one look at your instagram with some of the things you're cooking some of the things you're doing with it just makes you want to get into it so i guess when did did mushroom foraging kind of start you on this path of overall foraging then how did you get into plant foraging
1: Yeah I think um with the mushrooms we'd sort of take the mushrooms home we'd like pour them out over the table um we'd cook up the edible ones but it would always be like oh we'd do a trip out to the fields and then we'd do a trip to the supermarket and then you know and we almost wanted to cut out that trip to the supermarket because we were like well I think you can eat nettles someone told me you can eat nettles like should we have those instead of spinach or you know and we just wanted to um add add different ingredients to our plates without having to go to the shop on the way home and it sort of became a challenge to see you know if we could make first a complete meal out of wild ingredients and then you know maybe can we also make a dessert like is that a possibility um so it just went from there really but i do think i know you want to get into it and i massively think you should because it you know like you get that feeling like when you get into mushroom hunting you're like "What? how did I not know this was a thing like this is so great and then the door like another door opens for plant foraging and and it's it's so varied you know you've got like berries, nuts you've got tree saps you've got wild grasses seaweeds um and there's there's just so much to learn about and so many different flavors and um you can you can just be really creative and yeah I highly recommend it.
0: Well, and one of the the things that, you know, like mushroom foraging for me was daunting at first. So when you're listing mm. plant foraging, some of those same things in my mind come up like, oh my God, there's berries and nuts and grass. You know, it's like there's a, yeah. a big universe to explore. The good thing mm. is once you do it a few times and, you know, I should know this, I've done mushroom hunting. Once you do it a few times, find these things in the wild, it becomes ingrained. It's not mm-hmm. something that's like a constant battle of, you know, once you do it and go find it, You know that one, you know that nut, you know that berry, you know that wild garlic, and you Mm -hmm. kind of can build your knowledge base out. It doesn't have to be something that's daunting where you have to, you know, have an uh, encyclopedic knowledge from the start or constantly remind yourself necessarily. Um, I find that with foraging because it is so tangible and physical. The memory of what things are when you're finding them, especially when you're guided by someone who knows their stuff, really imprints in your memory um, more so than kind of subject matter where you aren't having that physical aspect of it
1: I guess it's been something it's almost like it's not it doesn't feel like you're learning it feels like almost like you're remembering you know like it doesn't it doesn't feel like new knowledge all the time like you go for a walk you learn another one or two plants and you come home but that just feels like that knowledge should just be already in existence you know like it's not hard to get someone shows you a plant and somehow you just remember and you can see that plant again in three years and go oh yeah I I know what that is someone showed me that and you know that's what we're evolved to do is sort of find and hunt for these plants and I think that's why it's just like an innately pleasurable experience because our brains have literally like developed to forage and now we live in this like mad technological world, but, you know, just a couple of hours foraging and you're just like, oh, it just makes you feel at home. It just makes you feel very like at peace. And yeah, it's a, it's a lovely thing to do.
0: Well, and we're tapping into that lineage of ancestral knowledge. I mean, mm. for the most part, we probably are remembering. I mean, at some point, our ancestors probably knew what all of these things in the forest were. Mm-hmm. And instead, you know, I have more of a familiarity with, the brand names of different shops than I do yeah, with trees yeah. or plants in the forest, and you know that's kind yeah. of a sad thing. I think mm-hmm. there should be a push more to to interface with the natural world and this is uh, something big that I preach about is I think as people get more of that cognizance of what's going on in the natural world, more mm-hmm. understanding of the plants and mushrooms that surround them, you get more of an innate appreciation for that world because now you yeah. recognize more about it, and as we face you know global issues surrounding the environment. Having Mm. more people tuned into an appreciation with nature can only kind of help. I think that's a huge thing. If you're going to expect people to care, people have to know about it and really understand it. Um, So a push to tie in with kind of that ancestral knowledge of what plants and mushrooms are is Mm. really going to be a key to dealing with the modern problems I think that we have in our environment just by getting Mm. people to, to care.
1: Yeah, I massively agree. I quite often have people being like, "Oh, well, how sustainable is foraging? Like, is that you know, are you doing a good thing for the planet?" And it's almost like, well, a world full of foragers is, go- you know, like they're going to be people that literally have formed a connection and almost like a relationship with these plants. And they, you know, you you want to keep them safe, and you want to know that they're going to be there when you go back again, and you want to teach people about them, teach your kids about them, like they're going to do a lot less damage than i don't know the people that want to build huge golf courses or supermarkets or anything like it's just yeah foraging does make you just just build that connection with the nature, natural world
0: and i think i always think that is a funny thing because people talk about that especially with mushroom foraging you know yeah. if you're picking the mushroom Are you killing it? Are you damaging it? Are you preventing future generations? Now, I don't want to make blanket statements because I know there are actually some areas of Eastern Europe where they do have to limit the amount of foraging because at some point, pulling mushrooms out of the ground does damage that underlying mycelium. And for anyone listening, you're obviously intimately familiar with this, but mushrooms are the fruiting body. The actual living organism is a lattice-like root structure underneath the ground that often spreads in a huge area of uh, this white kind of mycelial mass. And that's really the living organism. The mushrooms are its reproductive fruiting body. So yeah, there are cases where if you pick every single fruiting body and really dig it out of the ground, you may be damaging the underlying mycelium. I get mm-hmm. that. I also think that foragers may play a big role in actually propagating mushrooms, uh, especially Just if-
1: carrying them around. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Especially if you have the equipment like a bag with you know, um, or, or so, excuse me, something that's not airtight or something that's not, you know, uh, like a knitted bag or a woven basket or something where those microscopic spores as you're carrying them are actually falling out of your mushrooms
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: and allowing them, the spores to later combine and form new areas of my, of mycelium. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it's just so funny that people think, oh, is this sustainable? It's like, really there are so many problems with sustainability in the world where is it you think it's (laughs) really the people hunting around the forest for wild mushrooms and wild plants like are somehow just
1: as we've evolved to pick them they've evolved to deal with a land of mammals who pick them knock them over kick them that's just that's how they're made they're not evolved to deal with like restructuring you know the woodland but they can survive people picking them up in most cases.
0: That's such a good point. I mean, we have co-evolved now for hundreds of thousands of years Mm -hmm. with these plants, these mushrooms. I mean, yes, there has been adaptation on their end too, whether it's making themselves bright enough to attract our attention. So we eat it and spread Mm -hmm. their seeds, you know, so that, yeah, I, I just think that whole conversation around is foraging sustainable. I mean, I think there is a conversation to be had when you get into commercial level foraging.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: Uh, that's something we have here, where certain you know certain areas just get you can see. I mean, the clear cutting, all the pine needles and duff are actually lifted okay. off the forest floor. There'll be huge oh, swaths wow. of area where bushes are all. I mean, people take you know, mich- I imagine kind of machetes and they're just hacking down mm. all the low lying undergrowth, uh, especially mm. for mushrooms like black trumpet, hedgehog, chanterelle that sometimes hide under you know huckleberry bushes and things. They're just clear cutting okay. all that out of the way and picking all the mushrooms. Mm so
1: yeah that's sad
0: <laughs> there there is a conversation around it and maybe it's a good thing that people are thinking about sustainability but like let's not be overly critical of the sustainability of something that's getting you out into nature that probably mm-hmm. is actually helping to propagate these wild foods more than anything uh it really like is not the central problem what we're dealing with on the planet um <laughs> so I guess for you, when did this love of foraging, this passion for kind of ancestral foraging knowledge, when did this turn into something you felt comfortable sharing with other people and uh, bringing other people out into the woods with you? Because I'm impressed by the groups that you're leading and I, I'm always impressed with people who are able to kind of share that knowledge and impart it with others and not be held back by like a fear of I don't know enough. Or So when did you start feeling comfortable enough?
1: Um, So I guess, so I ran my first workshop only I think two years ago um, as kind of a tester but I'd been putting out all of my, you know, taking pictures of what I was doing, putting out pictures of um, my meals that I'd made and the things that I'd foraged out on um, Instagram and Facebook and people a lot of people asking like oh what's this can I come with you and it got to a point where sort of every time I went out for a forage I'd have like three people and their kids and their dog and uh I was sort of like okay well obviously people are really interested in this like I'm really enjoying sharing it Uh, you know maybe this could maybe I could do a workshop or or you know try and make this a, a business in some way um so I I did not feel ready for my first one at all. I sort of threw myself in at the deep end. I sort of nervously walked around some field and some woodland clutching like little uh, cards that I'd squeezed loads and loads of writing on. Um, and But it was really good. I loved it. And um, just the, the sense of community that it made. You know, I took everyone for maybe like a two and a half hour guided foraging walk and then we all sat down and Um, cooked up some of the food over a campfire and it just yeah just felt really great and like it's you know what I should be doing um and it went from there really
0: well and I think that's a big thing that I always encourage people to do you know I get a lot of questions about how do I learn about foraging I want to know what you know I want to read a book you know, what website can I go to? And those things are great. I think the reference materials we have now, you know, I was speaking with some foragers kind of from an older generation who didn't have a plethora of mushroom identification books, didn't Mm. have the internet even, didn't have a plethora of websites. Uh, And while there's still, you know, some conflicting information, it's still kind of an oral tradition. uh, I think there's a lot of value to those reference materials, but there is nothing like going in person with someone who knows your area, Uh, And really experiencing it in a physical way where someone is showing you, you can feel the mushroom, you know, they're able to point out common misconceptions or why something in this area might be different with a certain mushroom versus another area where it grows. You know, there's Mm -hmm. something about connecting with that community in person when it comes to foraging that I think imparts it on like a cellular level. And uh-huh. yeah, definitely. I, I don't know about you, but that's really the workshops you're describing are kind of how I started and how I learned. Um, yeah. You know, I could read all the books in the world and maybe it's the type of person that I am, but I could read all the books in the world and read the websites. And it's almost like information overload. Like, no, I need someone to walk through with me in my mm-hmm. area and really show me. And then I'll know. And I'll know in that place of, like you said, like remembering, like I'll know it. And it'll kind of like reactivate some old knowledge of, of my ancestors maybe. And I'll know it moving forward. I won't have to, you know, it'll be embedded. So is is that how you learn too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think even now, you know, I've I've been foraging for a really long time. But if I see a new herb or a new plant or a new mushroom in a book, I would not trust myself at all to then go out no matter how much I'd researched it and pick that up and be like, this is this. Like for sure, I think the best way to learn about wild plants, wild mushrooms, is to have someone show you in real life. Because yeah, it's little things. It's the texture. It's where it's growing. It's what trees it's under. It's you know the 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 shade of the cap that you can't quite get. You know the way the sunlight bounces off it. Just tiny little details that you don't even realize that you're registering in real life that you'd miss out on over the internet or in books. So I definitely think, yeah, it's a kind of IRL activity.
0: Definitely. And I think, you know, there's something (laughs) about books and information that is not region specific. So, you Mm -hmm. know, when I first started, I would, I think everyone starts just walking around the forest, picking up mushrooms, and you try to identify them. And I would come up with these IDs and share them with people. And they'd be like, you know, that mushroom doesn't actually grow in the Western United States. So, you know, there's (laughs) something about doing it with people that give you kind of that knowledge of like, almost limiting that universe of all the information and no no here's what's relevant to you here where you yeah, live
1: like whittling it down
0: yeah and so even when you know i want to go forage like i'm originally from the east coast of the united states okay. uh, and so i've had my experience out in the west coast i have contacted you know people back east who are foragers so if i'm ever going back visiting home mm-hmm. or visiting family um I would probably have them take me out because that's a different region. That's yeah. not like, I, yeah, I've learned a lot about the West coast. Obviously there are mushrooms that are similar, but I want to go with someone from that area. And I believe mm-hmm. that's a really important thing, understanding kind of the the regionality of this uh, and understanding that in person, you're going to just learn and retain so much more.
1: Yeah. Now, it's the experience as well. I think, you know, like you create that memory and it links to the plant and, And you're kind of going to remember those in in a couple in a pair. And if you know, it's a lovely experience being sat at home and reading a book. But there's, it's not going to match. It's not going to stick in your head as much as meeting up with an old friend and taking a walk through the woods and and finding something magic.
0: That's that's a great point. The memories you form are probably a really key part. Mm -hmm. You know, is the memory of the forage that helps you remember. Oh yeah, and that's that kind of mushroom. Um, Mm -hmm. So for you, what kind of people? And I think you alluded to this, some people with outdoorsy kids, but what kind of people are, uh, are you fine joining your forages?
1: Um, So generally I think it's people that are already quite outdoorsy or, you know, they enjoy being outdoors. In England, we kind of have this thing like going for a walk is just like walking your dog. So everyone will kind of do like a little short walk around the woods with their dog and that's going for a walk. And I think it's people who want to expand into like actually going for a walk like really experiencing being out in nature um and kind of yeah just adding to their adding to their experience of being outdoors really and i think it's it's people who are looking for a bit more of a hobby or a bit more of a reason to be outside it's lovely to go for a walk but when you're foraging it's you know it's like an activity that you're learning and you can expand on and progress with um so yeah, really all different types of people, but outdoorsy people, really.
0: Well, and that's really something that in the era of, you know, decreasing attention spans and the era of so much going on, I know like for me personally, it was hard for me to to go out and, you know, go take it. Yeah, for me, taking a walk was going around the the block with my dog.
1: Uh, (laughs) And that's not
0: really getting you out into nature to a point where you get some of those regenerative effects, you know, Mm -hmm. i.e. kind of like a forest bathing. But when you get out in nature, everyone knows there are regenerative effects that happen mentally, physically, emotionally. But it's hard to really set aside time for, you know, three hours of like just walking a trail. Um, That said, Mm -hmm. there are plenty of people that do it, plenty of people that love hiking. And I totally Mm -hmm. get it. But that's almost like an outdoorsy lifestyle and for someone like me who's kind of a more traditional almost like corporate lifestyle where you're working a 9 to 5 mm-hmm. job and then you get home you start you know it's hard to find that time to get out and like really I'm going to go walk in the woods for 3 to 4 hours <laughs>
1: yeah yeah
0: but when you have some incentive like hey you're going to find something you might be able to eat it you know you yeah. might be able to or you know you'll connect with this community and we'll all learn about the forest together and realize the treasures you find out there that incentivizes it to a point where it makes it so much easier to spend a lot of time outdoors. That was, And I'm just speaking from personal experience. That was key for me. And it's given me so much just spending more time outdoors, balancing out all of our screen time and all of our time, like in busy cities and all the low level stress that that imparts, finding more reason to get out and be in nature. Even if that's like tapping into, you know, dopamine, all the things we're wired with that, (laughs) that love foraging. Um, you know i think that has such a huge benefit i think it's such a useful tool to to just do that to get people outside
1: yeah it's almost like using foraging as a tool just to, just to be outside like just to be able to get that like clarity and space in your mind and almost i feel like when you're just going for a walk you still hold quite a lot of stress in your mind like you know you can just think about things over and over and but but if you have the activity or if you have something that you're focusing on, it makes it easier just to feel a bit, you know, more more grounded, I guess.
0: And more present, right? That's more a big present, thing. Yeah. Is trying to be present, trying to, yeah, let those stresses kinda of go to the back of your mind. And mm. if you're hunting for an edible mushroom you've never found let me tell you, that will have you being present. You will suddenly <laughs> be looking at the forest floor with such interest, everything else in your life will evaporate away.
1: Yes, too.
0: Now, do you have any, I, I had it written down here, any stories or anything that you share about um, just particularly impactful or memorable stories from some of your forages?
1: Um, yeah, I guess there's been quite a few stories. The best ones always involve kids. I've got Okay, which one's my favourite? Okay, so I think a lot of times kids come to the workshops or the walks and they don't really know what they're going to be doing or, or what's going to be happening. Um, and generally, I find parents will take their children to my workshops because they're like, they've got so much energy, I don't know what else to do with them. Like, they always want to be outside. They're just running around I really don't you know I maybe this will be good for them like it's something different and um and we had one young boy I think he was probably I guess he was about 11 or 12 and his dad had bought him and he was like oh you know to be honest he's a bit of a nightmare sorry if he acts up he's you know, he's got so much energy. If he doesn't listen, like, he's not very good at school. So just, you know, don't take it personally. You just let him run off. You, you know, he'll be fine. He'll come back. And I was like, okay. oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Like It's not school. He can, he can do what he likes. No worries. And um, it was a mushroom hunt. And we'd been a bit, we hadn't really found too much. It, it was a bit of a, it was coming towards the end of the season. So we hadn't found like a really good amount of, of mushrooms to feed our little tribe. And um I'd seen him kind of taking an interest, you know, kind of coolly hanging around the back of the group, like shuffling his feet, like trying to look like he wasn't listening. And then um, one of the mushrooms I kind of knew would be growing in that area, it's like uh, oyster mushrooms. And I sort of described what they look like and where they might find them and blah, blah, blah. And said, you know, it's not just on the ground, you should be looking, you know, look up, look at tree trunks, look, you know, look all around you. And at one point, I just heard him shout like, I found an oyster mushroom! And I turned around and he was scaling like the biggest tree I've ever seen in my life. That's and amazing. then kind of wrestling this huge oyster mushroom, which is enough to feed like 30 people. Um, wow. And that, yeah, he was mad and kind of crawled down. And it was like a real, you could just tell, like it was a real moment of achievement for him. And everyone was kind of like cheering and congratulating him. He was kind of like the man of the the man of the hour um so that was a really nice one I think just because it, it was it's it was obviously so different from his normal life and he just absolutely thrived and and loved it and it was it was just lovely to be a part of
0: Yeah. Well, and I think there are a lot of kids like that that don't necessarily thrive in a super structured school environment or, you know, some of the modern environments that we throw kids into. There isn't enough to stimulate them, you know, mentally and physically. So, yeah, Yeah. something like foraging. Clearly, he was actually listening. But something like he foraging, was. when he gets a little foundation, can become this immensely rewarding activity for kids because mm-hmm. it does stimulate. I mean, intellectually, you have to remember, be able to identify, mm-hmm. uh, be able to look at the right habitat and then physically, you know, maybe not climbing the biggest tree, but physically you're having <laughs> to, to go around and collect them and figure. So I think that's a really potent story in illustrating that, that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's, it's not school, but maybe it should be part of school. You know, maybe more kids should be doing this and getting outside and foraging is an easy way to incentivize them to do it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in inoculating them with that appreciation for nature, with that understanding, as I have said before, is going to yield a lot of benefits as they become adults and they become that next generation who has to think about real Mm -hmm. issues of sustainability and environmentalism. Um, So that I think that story just illustrates a couple of points beautifully.
1: Good, I'm glad you liked it. Let's get foraging in schools is the conclusion.
0: <laughs> exactly. I think that's what we're pushing for is a nationwide or international initiative to start making foraging in schools a thing. Foraging class.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh, I'm
0: starting with my little niece. I have a little two-year-old niece, uh, Lucy, and I. one of the first words that I taught her how to say was mushroom. Well done. <laughs> and anyone on Instagram can see the video where she's saying like mushroom, and it's the cutest thing ever. And so, yeah, I I am starting her on that journey, and I hope to take her foraging. And I know a lot of parents who do take their kids out foraging have seen great benefit. Uh, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I think it's something that should be an important part of the toolkit nowadays. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So as we've kind of covered a lot, I know I constantly kind of refer back to just an appreciation for nature in general you know for you do you have like a spiritual practice or like me and like others is your spiritual practice kind of getting out into nature or or is there some other practice that you do regularly
1: so i do quite a lot of yoga and meditation um as well as foraging which i also consider a meditation in its own right um So for me, I think it's really important to have some stillness and some, um, you know, just quiet from the constant internal chatter. Um, And I think any practice that kind of gives you that space and gives you that quiet is so amazingly beneficial and just enables you to be more focused and creative and more productive in the time that you are you know, admitting yourself to the real world. <laughs> but as much of it you can have as possible is is a great thing.
0: I I that's that's awesome and I was curious about that. Uh because I think for a lot of people who mushroom forage it is like that. I, I kind mm-hmm. of teed it up into but yeah, for me it is a spiritual experience. You know, mm-hmm. I think that in modern times, there aren't a lot of religious institutions or a lot of institutions that are really trying to, that really do meet our spiritual needs as people. I think Mm -hmm. now it's become something that kind of everyone's aware of. I think you're even seeing like huge mainstream parts of society turn toward a more spiritual bent. And Mm -hmm. I kind of see an underlying appreciation of nature as really the undercurrent of spirituality. Like even when you're talking about being still, and I've actually taken your lead a little bit. I started doing little like 10 minute meditations in the morning, which has been great. A best way to start the day is not the blue screen of the phone, but some meditation. Um, But I think like, even when you're talking about meditation, getting into that stillness, it's almost at a being one with the background hum of nature, the background rhythm Mm -hmm. of the consciousness that's all over the planet. And Mm so, you know, I think that, foraging and can be so much more, and mushrooms can be so much more, not even psychedelics or psychoactives, but just a connection with the outdoors and with mushrooms is like this amazing organism with so many properties, mm-hmm. so many unique as kind of like the neural network of the forest and appreciation for this thing can be its own spiritual experience. Not that you need to see mycelium as like God, but just, <laughs> just that you are tapping into what are century or millennia old traditions of really celebrating nature, kind of a materialistic spirituality where yes, nature is the divine. Um, it is that connection we're all speaking when we talk about spiritual or religious practice. And mm-hmm. I tee all this up, not just to sound clever, but because I do want to talk about um, some of the folklore and tales from England, not mm-hmm. that you're necessarily a pagan. I did see you on a post, you know, reference being a green witch. So I, want to try to transition to that world of, you know, kind of the the world of spirituality, maybe even pagan spirituality and nature worship and kind of how, if if at all, that you've integrated with that world, because I think a lot of people in America, at least, who have an appreciation for mushrooms or have an appreciation for plants, are very aware of that world and dabble dabble in those waters, even mm-hmm. if We're not doing formalized spiritual practices, ritualized practices to kind Mm of um, um, worship nature as it were. So I wondered if you had any experience in that world or just an interest in that world or kind of how that overlaps with your passion for the outdoors.
1: Yeah. So I think firstly, I just feel super lucky to be in England. Like we do just have such a wealth of like folklore and, you know, mysticism around around nature i have this amazing book called law of the land and it's literally like a map of england with um folk tales from the different specific areas of england sort of picked out um a lot of it includes, um, you know, like huge natural landscapes or uh, maybe a specific types of plants that grow in that area. Um, so there is like a real wealth to sort of dip into. Oh,
0: I want this book. You said it was more, <laughs> lore of the land, L-O-R-E. Lore of the
1: land, yeah. Ah, it's great. Terrific. It's, it's massive. But it's really good. And I'd say, um, well, I lent it to a friend recently. She came from Canada to... Travel England, and she was going to be here for eight months, and she was doing a real kind of like nature trail. So I gave her the book because one of my favorite things to do when I'm traveling is have a kind of, uh, almost like you know like an atlas of folklore, and go to these places and read the old folk tales that were, you know, local to that area.
0: What a good um, idea!
1: It's lovely. It's a lovely thing to do. We did it in in Scotland last year, and uh, all the different like locks have different tales or different monsters that live in the locks, so you can go to each one and and bring a little diary to write down all the folklore around those areas there's a
0: whole family of them
1: yeah yeah <laughs> a whole family
0: of Loch Ness monsters well yeah it's something that I was super intrigued with as well from a young age uh, was mm. the idea of folklore the idea and uh, I definitely think that part of those tales are really illustrating certain aspects of nature or personifying certain aspects of nature that help give us kind of a more tangible relationship. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, there is so much value to exploring those stories. Mm -hmm. And I love your idea of actually going to the places mentioned and reading these stories and really getting like this in-depth experience, because who knows, you know, what kind of knowledge that's kind of unlocking, especially if you have that, um, like a lot of us do in in America and obviously you're there in England, if you have that kind of uh, Anglican culture or background kind of in your mm-hmm. blood, like who knows what those stories are unlocking for you on a subconscious yeah. level, you know, you're tapping into and not to get like too Jungian or Freudian, you know, but, but unlocking mm-hmm. some of those uh, underlying cultural archetypes. I think it's really yeah. interesting to think about. And like I said before, it, uh, also having that benefit of tapping you into that undercurrent of an appreciation for nature, even if it's not so formalized as, you know, Druids putting hoods on necessarily. I'm sure that happens too. Mm. But even (laughs) if it's not so formalized as that, reading stories that kind of allude to that relationship can help us tap into that underlying spirituality.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess all of the folklore was sort of written as, you know, either a warning or a celebration or a a rite of passage for whoever would be reading it at the time, you know, It's it, they were lessons that they told their children. And I think so many of those lessons have been lost. Um, obviously we had, you know, like a huge portion of our history was lost, especially like with herbal medicine and, and folk tale and everything like that with, with the witch burnings. Um, so the folklore that kind of is left and that you can trace to a certain like geological location. It it is incredible it's like you're you're relearning those tales you're relearning those stories and as we are reconnecting with nature and and being outside more and more those lessons kind of become important again and while it's always great to you know we're all about like progression and developing as a community but it's also incredible to have these lessons that have stood the test of time and that you know come from such an ancient place and really speak to you as not just a human that lives in this point in history, but just as a human.
0: I think that's a great point. And I love actually thinking of folktales in that way, as kind of vestiges of a time where there was more intimate relationship with nature, where there was more knowledge Mm -hmm. of mushrooms and herbal plants that was, you know, it was actively suppressed. Yeah, yeah. You know, while I'm not, you know, a Luddite, obviously we're talking over technology, you know, but I think (laughs) it is important to recognize that in a lot of ways, both uh, morally and spiritually, and there are other elements where you do kind of reach back to ancient technologies that were really effective and Mm. you can bring them forward and blend them with Mm. the modern day. Um, Yeah. So I think uh, it sounds like folk tales have been kind of an important intermediary between like now where everything's accessible and you can go back and learn about, yeah, this knowledge was suppressed and really dig back and see that. Whereas in the interstitial period before that was possible, it may have been Mm -hmm. that all you had was a folktale to kind of keep that spark alive until it could be passed to a generation that could really ignite it again and go back and retrieve all that knowledge.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: So outside of just being fun stories that I love, I am now ascribing like a monumental intergenerational importance to them that I don't think <laughs> that I don't think's far off. I mean, I think what you're saying there it, that just brought that thought to my mind, but I don't think that's mm. far off. And mm. um, it, it's just hugely intriguing to me.
1: Mm, yeah. I think they're, they are incredibly important. And, and also just, you know, they're beautiful. They're, they're little pieces of artwork that get passed down and, you know, no one ever remembers a folk tale like perfectly. You add a little bit, you take a little bit away, you mix it up, so it, it's almost like every time, and and also every time you get told a folk tale in person, you don't read it off the internet. It, you know, it, it literally is passed down to you. It it's something so unique that probably only you have heard because whenever they've said it to someone else, it's it had a little bit changed or a character went missing and someone else turned up. So yeah, they are kind of constantly developing little gifts.
0: And just to tie it back to mushroom foraging, you know, I think when you brought up oral tradition, I think mushroom foraging is one of those things that is still kind of an oral tradition. And there's something special to traditions like that now where everything Mm. is seemingly like so known and well mapped out and widely available. There is Mm. something that we love about knowledge that isn't disseminated everywhere. You know, only yeah. you and a select group are kind of <laughs> r- initiated into learning. Uh, so there is something really special about oral traditions, whether it be from folklore or whether it be you know from mushroom hunting. And you know, that's something that I've experienced. You know, when I took a trip to Mexico this past year, uh, one of the the natives there told me that this certain polypore that was growing on a tree. I wasn't exactly sure what it was. It was pretty high up in the tree, but one of those hard, you know, conch
1: polypores.
0: uh, He said, yeah, well, if you take that and get an extract from that and mix it with snakes blood, it's actually hugely invigorating. And I'm thinking like, what? I've never (laughs) heard of that before. Obviously like that's not in the the literature. That's not in my guidebook. And there was something so great. And like now I've, this is like the millionth time I've told that story because it was so cool. Um, And there is something about those oral traditions that is so intriguing to us probably more so in a world where it feels like everything is known. And I think that's a great pull that gets people into mushrooms is there is still that bit of mystery. I mean, you get just enough knowledge where you can kind of step into this vast unknown.
1: Yeah, You
0: know, you get some of the terminology and someone who kind of shows you the door into this uh, mm-hmm. uh, other universe of kind of fungal networks and everything, but there's still so much left to explore. And I think you know, as humans, we are explorers, and it's nice to know there's territory yet to explore.
1: Yeah, for sure. They're still like to start discovering new species. And I think people, you know, one of the kind of community groups that I have found really amazing and useful, there's a couple of like Facebook mushroom hunter groups. And I've had in the past, like a mushroom that I couldn't quite identify. And I just posted a couple of pictures um, into the, And it's like, there's expert mycologists just sat at their computer waiting to tell you what it is. Right and a story it feels about that way it. Sometimes. Yeah, it's amazing. But I mean I think, you know, there are there are mycologists still who aren't um you know, they're not being paid to do this, but their love for mycology and their love for mushrooms is, means they're finding new species all the time. Um yeah, it is incredible.
0: I, I have to second that. I mean, I, I tell people like, yeah, learn in person. But I think mm. the resource we have of Facebook groups like that, mm. you know, and obviously they're regional. So like in Northern California, we have California mushroom hunters and Northern California mushroom hunters and all these different groups. And it does feel that way sometimes that some of these guys are so tapped in,
1: you know, <laughs> yeah, where it's yeah. like
0: you post a mushroom, you think it's nondescript or and they're like, boom, here's this, here's the Latin name for it. And it's like yeah, that is yeah. really such a huge, huge resource that we're really uh lucky to have and there are a couple names that come into my mind of people that it always seems like you post something they're bloop right away they've got something for you so that really yeah as much as the funny
1: as oh god you go
0: i was gonna say as much as the oral tradition is great there is something nice about having like a huge connection to everything already known that you that you can reference you know
1: yeah, just in case you need like a backup.
0: <laughs> yeah, in case... If
1: there's no like wise woman to tell you the stories of the unknown mushroom you have, you can just go on Facebook.
0: <laughs> yeah, in case you don't have a, a, a touch point for that ancient tribal knowledge, you, you may need Facebook. <laughs> Actually, I was just thinking about, there's an interesting story told to me as we're talking about like nature and everything with mushrooms, that same Italian gentleman, uh, my, mm. har- my hardware store, kind of Italian sage of mushrooms. Um, he told me that, One of the things that his family has always been keyed into, and I'm curious Mm. if you've ever heard of this, with harvesting mushrooms is phases of the moon. Um, Mm. He said that, I think it was, God, I'm going to butcher it and not relay the information, but basically a certain number of days after the new moon is when you go out. Like more so that, obviously there had to have been enough rain, but more so than like, did it just rain or has there been sun? He's like, wait until, you know, whatever, 10 days after the new moon and go out Mm. if it's during the season and you'll find mushrooms
1: oh um, uh, yeah I've, I've heard of what, what my auntie does sort of like lunar gardening and she's very into like only planting seeds in you know the first quarter or uh, you know only harvesting her vegetables oh, when wow. it's the full moon or something um I haven't actually heard of it in terms of picking mushrooms um but I think it yeah maybe it's a huge thing or maybe it's i think lots of families like have their own little family traditions don't they and they yeah. sort of assume that everyone knows what that is but yeah it could it could be a huge thing that i missed or it could just be them
0: it could just be them <laughs> that's a good thing to remember too sometimes the oral tradition is it's just them oh, um, yeah
1: you have to take the oral tradition with a pinch of salt
0: Dis- discernment when it's
1: folklore it's fine because if a new character comes in it really doesn't make a difference but if it's like which mushroom should i eat and when should i pick them
0: <laughs> yeah we need that we need to exercise a lot of discernment sometimes with the oral tradition yeah. <laughs> and and actually as we're talking about folktales do you have uh any particular folktales that you love or any ones that really stand out as something everyone should, should know about
1: um i mean mushroom wise i love the baba yaga folk tales um oh. so i'm i'm sure you've heard of her she's the, I, I
0: have eastern yeah. european correct or something Eastern in
1: european yeah i mean they're so into their mushrooms they they're gonna have the best mushroom folk tales of course it's weird that the folk tales actually sort of reflect uh the whole cultural um uh opinion or whatever of mushrooms like in england all of our mushroom folk tales are super like oh you know a young maiden went out and got trapped in a fairy ring and danced and danced and danced until she danced on bloody stumps because you know they're all like super scary and yeah. yeah they're bad they're they're like really dark and like really you know the fairy rings are where the fairies live and they're like mischievous and evil and if you get trapped you'll the horrible things will happen. So these aren't nice fairies. The mushrooms couldn't lead oh, you to no. a universe of
0: nice, lovely fairies?
1: No, they don't do that. Not in England. In England, we've been forever warned to stay away <laughs> from the mushroom wings. Because, um, yeah, fairies aren't so nice.
0: <laughs> now, the tale of the Baba Yaga, what is that? Um, oh, yeah. What does that center around? Is she kind of the keeper of mushroom knowledge? or?
1: So she's kind of like... Um, your archetype of like the wise old woman like the crone kind of figure so she's depicted always surrounded by um amnitas or or fly garrick mushrooms um and she she rides around in a huge pestle mortar which uh indicates you know she would have been known as like a witch or a herbalist or a wise woman you know she she would use her pestle and mortar to grind down magical herbs and create spells and Um, She lives in a huge house that is on chicken legs and it just runs away and creates havoc now and then. And the majority of her stories are about transition um, and change and and growing up. So quite often she'll lure young children um, into the woods and set them challenges. Um, And she's neither kind of good nor bad as as many fairy tales and folk tales go, um, just depending on which folk tale you read, she might kind of just be luring you into the woods to eat you, or she might be, you know, setting you up for a life-changing challenge. Um, and I think I love the stories because I feel like they're so reflective of of the challenges you and the journeys you take on when you kind of open yourself up to that world of being more connected to nature and, you know, metaphorically walking out into the woods um, to find your own, your own path. So I think one of, one of my favorite stories is, have you heard of Vasilisa?
0: Vasilisa that doesn't ring a bell.
1: Oh, so it's kind of, it's a very like old tale um, to do with Barbiago and like a young girl with a kind of horrible stepmother and horrible stepsisters gets lured into the woods and um, the Baba Yaga gives her all these really, really difficult challenges, thinking that she can't do it um, and she has to like rely on her intuition and, and trust herself. And uh, she ends up being given the gift of a flaming skull on a stick by the Baba Yaga and she takes it, which is kind of symbolic of the vision that you get, you know, the the clearer vision you get after taking such a, a brave walk into the woods and she brings the skull on a stick home to her family and um, it burns them to death.
0: Wow. Okay. I thought she was getting, I I I thought she was getting some insight. (laughs) She was getting insight to navigate the forest and she was going to come back to her family illuminated. No, she Birds. She burns them with to the death. But
1: she was. That is also true. Your your bit is also true. She does. It does navigate her through the woods, but it navigates her to the destiny of burnt, burnt horrible stepmother. Well, that's
0: a psychological thing, right? We all have to quote unquote kill our parents. We all have to overcome mm-hmm. the archetypal familial figures to really become exactly. our true selves. So many so maybe, archetypes. I I like that. <laughs> better I like our psychological (laughs) version better than actually burning the whole family
1: I mean yeah the folk tales are always so metaphorical you know like they're super dramatic people are uh, almost I think just just because they're the kind of tales you that captivate people and they're the kind of tales that you're going to remember but behind those Mm -hmm. really dramatic events are the more subtle metaphorical meanings Yeah, the literal story,
0: the literal story might not be as intriguing, you know, the literal story of like, she retained this vision and came back a new person that might not Mm. get remembered as easily as, you know, carrying the banner (laughs) of the flaming skull. But I think that's really interesting to tease out. I love doing that with folk tales. I mean, Mm. you know, not to, um, what do I want to say, not to antagonize anyone, but even religious texts, you Mm -hmm. know, those to me are kind of like the most uh, uh, potent folktales ever. That's why they've survived. Mm-hmm. And I think there are huge metaphorical messages in all of them. Um, yeah. And I think it is really interesting to kind of pull those threads out uh, and, and oh, see yeah. what the message is. And it lends more credence to, to my newly established theory, uh, or actually well-worn theory, that folktales were time capsules of some of this knowledge. Then that's yeah. how you would pass it along, especially when it comes to knowledge of nature knowledge of human's mm-hmm. relationship with nature. So you pass along the capsules of these stories that, and, and for some time maybe even had to be uh, so Uh, metaphorical that you couldn't glean the message because, you know, authority, institutions, things like that may have not wanted you to have the actual message, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, herbal medicines. And you talked about the time of like the witches there. Mm -hmm. It feels like there's this whole body of knowledge that is more associated with the feminine that was repressed. You know, we are kind of in a male dominator society in a lot of ways. And Mm -hmm. I think there probably were stories that had some of that more, a feminine kind of witchy for lack of a better term knowledge oh, associated yeah. with it that had to be disguised if it was going to get passed on mm-hmm.
1: there definitely is and it's so lovely to read now because i know like you know growing up as a young girl so many of the stories we were told are you know there's a lovely young princess she gets saved by a prince there's a horrible old witch done you know again and again right. and again and it does sink into your subconscious so to bring back these fairy tales where you've got these incredible powerful women who are you know old and crazy and love herbs and the woods. It, it, they're so you know beautiful and I think it's so important that those tales are retold because there there are so many messages of you know strong powerful female characters that that we need and that we've Massively lost.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. Uh, you know, my partner has long been into kind of more of those folk tales, and she's really into literature talking about how the oral tradition was kind of a feminine tradition, and there was a long time, and not to get too deep into this, and obviously, mm. I may be missing some of the finer points here, but the idea that a lot of the written tradition was mm-hmm. actually became the dominion of males and almost a tool of oppression. Uh, there's a book called Alphabet versus the Goddess, where mm-hmm. women weren't allowed to read. And so mm-hmm. things became this written tradition that became kind of sacrosanct. And the yeah. oral traditions were left to females and kind of repressed. So mm-hmm. I think there is some history there. And that's why it is really good to revive these oral yeah. folk tales, especially the ones that do show women in either you know, a positive light or at least not a negative light and and Mm -hmm. maybe at least powerful and and a significant, important light, not at the effect of the story, but main drivers of the story and having Mm. big effects. Um, I I think that, you know, now more than ever, as kind of we come back into an era of female empowerment, Mm
1: -hmm. things
0: like this should come more and more to light.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's some really interesting things that you can see within, the history of folk tale as well like quite a lot of folktale um you you see sort of coming from a, a bygone era that has this very you know like strong female characters and then as christianity comes along um it almost warps these stories and changes the characters and changes the message of the story so here and I, also in like germanic countries as well there's um a tale of the elder mother and she's this uh Strong goddess who lives in the elder tree and protects the rest of the forest um and in some areas you know it's it's tradition to tip your hat if you want to go and collect elder flowers or elder berries or elder wood and you know you ask the elder mother can i c- you know can I have this wood or these berries or whatever um because she's such a you know reproachful fierce figure um that has to be respected, right. and then Christianity comes in and they change the kind of essence of the elder tree. Um, and there's like a poem in the Bible, I can't remember how it goes, it's something like never strong and never a tree since that since the Lord was nailed to thee, or something. So it was the elderwood was the the wood of the cross that jesus was nailed to was made of elderwood and since then it became cursed
0: lovely uh, and it was
1: yeah. yeah and it and the whole you know the whole essence of it changes it becomes masculine it becomes you know we can never a tr- tr- uh, never a tree and always a shrub and you know there's so many little bits in history that you can almost see through the evolution of tales just around different plants or different areas that you can kind of track that female empowerment yeah. rise and fall.
0: Well, and I know a lot of, you know, indigenous cultures, I, obviously I'm not the expert, but it seems like a lot of indigenous cultures uh, in South America and in North America mm. did venerate females. They were matriarchal cultures mm. and, you know, and obviously they had an ad- appreciation for nature. So maybe one of the big themes I'm taking away from our conversation is that as we progress in our modern era, we're kind of coming back around to some of the true um, ancient, uh, what do I want to say? Ancient kind of spiritual knowing that cultures have long had, which Mm -hmm. was the importance of the female energy, the importance of nature. Nature is really the thing we're celebrating. When we do celebrate our connection, our oneness, you know, that's spirituality, call it whatever you like. The goal, the the paths are many. The goal is one, get connected any way you can. And Mm -hmm. so maybe we're kind of realizing that some of the track we've been going down for the past maybe thousand or a couple thousand years has kind of taken us away from that natural human baseline which is mm-hmm. to honor the matriarch you know, maybe honor the crone um mm-hmm. and honor the natural world and to tie it back in so cleanly maybe mushroom foraging can be one of the tools that yeah. we use <laughs> that we use to tie back into this culture because it does seem like to me folks are more in tune with the natural world, I just know there's like this huge section of the foraging community that mm-hmm. is really aware of this information really knows this stuff so maybe yeah. it's a subconscious hack to kind of help us get back into the flow of this of this information um, mm. to benefit to benefit everyone well now that we've kind of covered the whole width and breadth of everything in the natural world yeah all the folklore in England. We went which, all over. We went all over and I love it. I love taking a windy <laughs> path and getting into some things that, you know, I may not have the best basis for, but talking with someone else, we bring up things, formulate new ideas. Maybe people will hear this, be able to contribute their own ideas. And we're all getting a better understanding of this thing. Um, but we are coming up on an hour and I do not want to take up yes. all your time. It so, is the mushroom hour. It is the mushroom hour. <laughs> it's hours. Um, so I guess what I want to circle back to is, getting personal again with uh with fern what is kind of next on the plate for you is it kind of more forage groups are you doing anything with cooking classes because you post delicious stuff on social media (laughs) i'm waiting for like the wild kitchen cookbook of fern you know what's next
1: um so i think the next year for me is really about focusing on my community um so i run local foraging groups um so i'm going to yeah be working on those really hard trying to expand them and turn my town into a little forager's paradise <laughs> um and then yeah at some point probably next year um i'd really like to expand on like my blog and maybe have a look at doing a book i'd really love to do something that makes very accessible like foraging recipes available i think it's you know i mean i say i'd love to be able to cook like really complicated recipes but there are such simple beautiful dishes you can make and you can make with kids um and i'd I'd really like to yeah be able to share that so walks and groups and books and more more pictures
0: (laughs) it all sounds fantastic and i would love an approachable forage cookbook because i've got a few and, you know, I don't have Michelin stars. No, but I, I mean, I am kind of challenged when it comes to the kitchen. So having like really approachable staples that you can make with forage goods yeah, where yeah. the forest can become kind of more readily my grocery store, like you were saying earlier, I think yeah. would be really, really cool. So I really hope that book comes out uh, now for people that want to learn more. What is the best way to reach you or what's the best way to find you?
1: Um so Foraged by Fern is my tag. Um and Instagram and Facebook is where I live on the internet. <laughs>
0: <Very> <laughs> Come good. and visit me. <laughs> Very good. Uh any are you on TikTok?
1: No, I'm t i am I feel old. People keep being like, Yeah, look at my TikTok, and I'm like, What? I don't know what that is. Are you I, on TikTok? <laughs>
0: I've been asking people that I am on TikTok now. TikTok <laughs> okay. is a kind of like a wild west of social media. It's incredibly frenetic. I don't know what's going on, but I do know <laughs> there are like kids in high school making super interesting videos with all these visual effects and music. And it's like, man, someone put a lot of time into this. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I've started now just in the past couple days, I started posting up some of my goofy videos on there. And I'm like, <laughs> man, I do not have the production value of these well, kids. I don't know if laser I seriously I need to up my game but it, it, it all that said it is kind of fun and I think it is a lot less curated than Instagram and Facebook which has its good points and also mm. you know kind of its downsides um, and yeah. that you get some content that's like who in their right mind would be but anyway <laughs> this is not an advertisement for TikTok I was just, cur- <laughs> I was just curious because I felt like
1: give it a guy.
0: I felt old too I was like what is TikTok what is going on um and it, it is kind of a a wild west crazy place um So that's great. So people can reach out to you on Instagram. They can reach out to you on Facebook. Uh, We've heard more about your future plans. So all I'm left to say is thank you so much for taking the time and being with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: It was a pleasure. And I hope we can have more of these in the future. And I am definitely going to be looking into all this great folklore you shared with us.
1: Good. Sounds great.